Welcome to Two Queers, Four Questions. I'm Ezra Furman. I'm Agnes Berinsky. And we're two trans Jewish artists creating our own four questions for each Jewish holiday to uncover their countercultural spirit. Hi, Ezra. How are you? I'm really okay. I'm really pretty much... You don't have to ask such difficult questions straight off the bat. Well, does that count as one of our questions, or does that... Every question counts, and once we reach for... You just did two so far. How am I? And does that count as one of the questions? We've got two left. All right, listeners, whoever you are, if you even are, Welcome to Two Queers, Four Questions, or whatever we call it if we change the name. Get back to you on that. Where we come up with four new questions for every Jewish holiday to try to uncover or recover Judaism's countercultural potential and see how we can relate to it as queer, trans, artist, Jews, which we both are. Perhaps we should introduce ourselves, hey? I think that's also fitting. My name is Ezra Furman. I am a trans woman who is a Jew, a Jewess, if you will. And I'm a queer Jewish artist. I, it's funny you say that. I'm also a queer Jewish artist. Um, what are the odds? I, my name is Agnes Berinsky. I, um, I use she and they pronouns. I am a theater maker and a writer. I wrote, I write plays. I write essays sometimes. I wrote a book. I'm working on another book. Mm-hmm. And I live in Los and Angeles. Oh. oh, yeah. And I live in Somerville, Massachusetts. We're, um... We're bi-coastal. This episode is about the month of Elul, which is... Maybe it's going to be the only episode that's not about actually a holiday. This is about a month, which precedes a holiday. Um, Agnes, why don't you tell us what Elul exactly is? Basic outline. I think it's very appropriate that we're feeling the way we're feeling because... Elul is sort of about getting ready to start something, you know, like it takes us, we're sort of here warming up to this whole thing. And Elul is sort of the, is the warm up to the high holidays. And so I think that we need to, Mm -hmm. we need this right now as much as we all need this starting August 9th, which is when Elul starts. It's the last month of the Jewish year, August this year in 2021, so it's August 9th. And it's the final. It's an early one. It's an early one. Yeah, we're going to be. Yeah. It's going to be over before we know it. Um, it leads up to the beginning of the Jewish year, which is starts with Rosh Hashanah, and then ten days later, Yom Kippur, known as the Yamim Noraim. Which would you say it's the terrible days, the awesome day? How would you translate Yamim Noraim? They always say days of awe. The awesome days, I guess. We don't have a good. Awesome has been corrupted, obviously, but. Um, Nora really means 
either terrible or like over really like overwhelmingly powerful the overwhelmingly powerful days yeah anyway there's nothing about elul in the bible um but in the rabbinic tradition it sort of is the time when we get ready to repent um and i have been thinking of it as like the time of year when you start getting emails from turbo tax about like tax season is coming up and you have to right. start getting your 1099s in order don't say those words. Some of us extended our tax deadline from pure organization. It's an annual tradition with me to extend my taxes. So we're in good company. May your heart be easy. But yes, we're getting ready. And there's a sense of nervousness for a spiritual accounting. Yes. And I think the idea is how do we get to that accounting without feeling completely terrified and anxious and overwhelmed. We need our little month to sort of warm ourselves up. Um, and the idea in that sense is that God in Elul is closer to us and more accessible. God is like in God's most tender aspect is, is, is feeling full of mercy and favor. Um, and so there are a couple things we do ritually to get ourselves in that headspace. There's a shofar blow every weekday after shacharit, like a wake-up call to remind us um, there's a specific prayer service, the Slichot, which um, I think was was reading was like originally for fast days in general, and and that starts just in the maybe a week or two before, uh, maybe a week before Rosh Hashanah is when Slichot begins. So it's yes. not the whole month. Although first, apparently Sephardic Jews do say it all month. Oh really? Ashkenazi oh, think they start a week before. But then really the word that we come to in Elul, and this is going to be sort of the center of what we're going to talk about today, I think, is Teshuvah. Um, and we do a cheshbon hanefesh, and we arrive at this process of Teshuvah. And one way of translating Teshuvah is repentance, or some kind of um, making amends, I guess. And cheshbon mm-hmm. hanefesh is like a, a reckoning of the spirit, sort of like to bring back that taxing thing. It's like going through your expenses for the year and which of those, which of those Rite Aid trips were business expenses, and which were just for a new In brand bars. of eyeliner? Yeah, yeah. But that's a business expense, I think. Eyeliner. That depends on your business. Um. Yeah. Well, so does that feel like? Do we feel like we have a sense of what this what this month is? I mean, I feel like we're in the alul of our podcast right now. We're like getting ready. Getting ready. Well, to focus on that word. Shuva, because we're going to talk about it a lot. His, his basic translation probably would be repentance, um, but it has this meaning of return. Uh, it has the word shuv in it. The Hebrew word shuv means return or even repeat. Um, I It carries some sense of like, getting back to what we're supposed to be doing. Getting back to what we're supposed to be supposed to be doing, what we where we began? Is that I mean I think this is like this is sort of the question. What so maybe we we're launching to? maybe we're launching into question one. I think this is it. Right, okay. Question one is what is Shuba and how do we do it? Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I was wondering if 
if this is how much this is like a ritual with actual things that you do in a methodical way and how much this is like an internal ineffable process well let's start with i feel like we should start with ritual let's name ritual and then we can see whether we can do away with it i feel like this is yeah kind of a figure for this whole project of what we're doing with the ritual aspect of judaism Mm-hmm. But let's start with the structure. According to, this is sort of the, where we're taking this from framework from Maimonides, basically. Yeah, Moses Maimonides, 13th century um, rabbi that, you know, changed, it impacted Judaism forever in a major way. He was one of the, the biggies. And he, I, I think what he did really to Judaism uh, and does to Elul is to really systematize it. I mean, he did more than that. He was a philosopher and all this stuff, but he, he made a system out of the commandments that got very specific. Here's how you do it. Here's what you should be thinking about when you do it. He's like very, you can put this all into boxes and get it all done. So let's say... Um, yeah, which I feel I I like appreciate so much in some ways, and then sometimes I'm just like, are you? We're talking about like matters of the heart. You think you can just summarize them that way? But then again, like we put things. I I love putting things into lists that can't be put into lists, can't be contained by lists. It helps narrow them and make them doable. I think that's the idea. I also think there's something very queer about form and surfaces and containers, but that's maybe for another time. Let's say mm-hmm. here. Okay, I'm gonna give you an example. You're gonna tell me what I what I would do if I were to if the situation would happen. So I'm um, feeling very lonely in my apartment, and I sneak over to your Somerville apartment and steal one of the chickens that you keep in your yard because I feel like if I can have this chicken in my house. She'll keep me company and I can have eggs and, and I don't, you know, I keep the chicken in my yard so that you can't see her. Months go by, you're without your chicken, you don't know what happened. And eventually it comes to everyone's like, you know what, I really should bring this chicken back to Ezra. Um, what do I do? Oh, Agnes, you could have just asked. Yeah. Um, so, Okay. I think what Maimonides would have you do, and I think this is very true to the, I think he's good at being true to the rabbinic originators of these rituals. Do I just like sneak the chicken back into your house and then I'm good? Or do I have to? I think there are these four components to doing tshuva for a specific sin. One is restitution like fix if you've done an actual repairable harm in the world see what you can do to undo it to pay the debt you owe that gets with different acts it would be very complicated with this i think it would be to um return my chicken and also apologize to me i mean like really see if you can repair the breach of trust repair the relationship to some degree um 
So it's not enough if I just take the chicken and put it in a cage and leave it on your doorstep, ring the doorbell and run away. I have to say to you, Ezra, I have a confession to make. I have stolen your chicken and she's been living with me for the last three months. And here she is. Well, yeah, so maybe it gets a little muddy with like interpersonal things. There's these three other parts of doing tshuva, which is confessing the sin that you did, regretting it, and determining never to do it again. Um, I mean, those three can be done like entirely like alone. I mean, you can just say things out loud and that counts as confession, you know? And if it's something that nobody knows about and nobody, there's no relationship to repair or material situation to rectify, then that, then that is a solitary process. When it involves someone else, like the, the principle, the most important thing is that you try to repair that harm and that relationship. So I think that the bringing back a chicken would not be a full repair because um, I think you'd have to say out loud, you'd have to acknowledge to me that like, you wronged me in this way uh, and you regret it and you want to repair our relationship. I, on, on, on the other end of it, there's like the matter of like forgiveness, which is like way less focused on, I think, in, in talk in Jewish talk of repentance. Like the Shuva is like something you do for something you did wrong. Yeah. Right. Forgiveness is like a whole separate thing that is not required really. It's I mean it's it at some um, you know, Talmud and commentary goes into like when someone probably should forgive someone else, when what levels of forgiveness, when they don't have to forgive someone, but like it's basically not required to forgive someone. It might be the at some point, it might be the more moral thing to do, it might be the healthier thing to do psychologically. But there's not a sense of like you have to forgive someone who apologizes, um, especially if they've done something that can't fully be repaired. Well, so I feel like we're getting so even talking about forgiveness, we're getting into this more fuzzy emotional territory because these things go deep and they mess with the heart and the soul and they destabilize more than just whatever material reality has been disrupted. So let's say that we've like set aside the the ritualistic formal structure of teshuva, which is a verbal confession, restoring whatever has been undone, repairing what has been undone, and then resolving never to do it again. It's like those the three part. That's the that's the dance. But what's the like? What's the mood of the dance? Like, what's let's get into the 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 sort of mushy or emotional stuff, like or or more like prickly emotional stuff. But emotion isn't usually isn't mushy in my experience. Um, it may be soggy, but it's not mushy. Um, yeah, like how how does this feel? Is that 
Yeah, or like, is 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 teshuva simpler? Like, is it just sort of like, can you just step away from something and do do wrong no more? Is that possible? Is that plausible? And if it is plausible, does it count? Yeah, well, I mean, I I hold dear, um, I hold dear the idea that actually, I just think it's true that feeling guilt feelings is usually counterproductive for me. I mean, there's a kind of wallowing in guilt that doesn't do anything. And it, if you just feel sad about it, and it's like feeling that just saps your energy. And what I actually need is energy to um, go become a better person. Um, both repair what I've done wrong and just like uh, energetically go do good in the world. Um, there's a Hasidic um, Rebbe, like the this some kind of inheritor of a Hasidic dynasty, Simcha Bunim, who uh, takes a line from Psalm 34 that says, Sur Merava Asetov, turn from evil and do good. And he says kind of like, turn from evil means don't just, don't keep thinking about how you've done so many things wrong. Just turn away from it. Go do good. Um, Don't be distracted by these bad feelings. So I almost like want to be a little bit I don't want to feel sadness about what I've done. I just want to acknowledge it. I want to I want to acknowledge how I failed and actually get positive future-oriented energy from acknowledging that. Like, okay, this is what happened. This is what I did wrong. What do I do next to heal it and to not repeat it? And what I kind of ask myself is like, can that even be, can that be a joyful thing? Can that be like almost exciting to be, to realize that you've done something wrong? When somebody tells you, you fucked up, that you could feel like, I mean, you feel remorse and it feels bad, you know, it's not a good feeling, but you see that there's an opportunity here um, to do better. I want to, well, let's roll from, let's use that, let's use that joyful energy and roll into this next question. Because I think that, I think that obviously there'll be a lot more to say about Chuva in the course of this conversation, but I think we should take in the next question because I think it will give us a gust of, yeah. of illumination. Um, I, this is your invitation, but I, I love it. So I will just say it if that's okay. Um, the second question is, is being trans a kind of Chuva? Is doing Chuva a kind of transness? Yeah. So what what the fuck did you mean by that? that? <laughs> well, okay. I've been dealing with with the project of how to relate to some people in my life who don't really understand my gender and what it means that I'm trans, or like why. So I s- sort of have been working on this idea that everyone is trans, which is not true. It's not true. 
but like everyone does a version of what trans people do. I mean, I'm, I've been thinking about this specifically to try to tell people who are not trans people, cis people, like you've done this thing too, where you, you grow up, you kind of have to create a person to be, you have to claim your own gender, your own way of carrying yourself. And you can create it out of existing materials and imitations of things you've seen. That's what, I mean, trans people do that too, to some degree, to, to a large degree. We're Im imitating genders we've wanted to be more like. Um, but everyone does it. Everyone does the creation of a self, a person that they want to be that's never quite existed before. I mean, when you first said this to me, I feel like I wanted to push back on it because it's like, I, I think the thing and, and part of why I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding on a visceral level what transness is, is because the idea that one could, and it's also like, how do we talk about this? Are we, especially if it's returning, like, are we returning to, there are different ways of narrating transness. Like if I'm a trans woman, which funny, it happens to be that I am, I could narrate that I've always been a woman and I'm just like returning to that or I'm like making that externalized in a certain way or I could narrate mm -hmm. it that like there was a moment in my life when I realized this thing about myself uh and I artic started to articulate it in this way so it's it's um even there there's like a complexity to what the return to is but I think right. that thing of like I think the thing that's so hard for people is that when you're in high school and you're defining yourself and claiming an identity, you sort of like look around and you see the palette of options. You see like, Oh, there are some people who are like, there's this goth thing. And then there's this like preppy thing. And there's this like artist thing. And there's this like science STEM thing and whatever you, you move towards the things that seem available to you. But I think that for a lot of young people, the idea that you could understand your gender as something that's different than what everyone else has been telling you it is, is like off the table. That's not a visible viable right. option. And I feel like that's where, the provocation that that transits is a kind of chuva is so exciting because it's like what does it mean to not just like return the chicken and apologize and like go back to the way things were it's it's like what if things actually could be wildly different than they are now i mean what if yeah. the world we live in could be more just what if my relationships could be deeper what if like the love i feel for the people in my life could be more um rich and extravagant and and like furry and and flowering like there are things that are sort of outside the, the, the our sense of what's available that yeah. we start to consider. Where it's like, oh, chuva is actually is not just about cleaning up the spilt milk. It's like it's it's rebuilding the universe. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think I I was trying to do a thing with this. Everyone is trans idea. Like I'm trying to make it kind of domesticated so it's like less threatening to certain friends and family of mine you know um but in fact it is it there's an um it's kind of extreme it is becoming it's not just like i like how this jacket looks on me it's like what who i am is different i'm claiming a self-determination that goes 
feet that cuts through everything everyone has ever seen in me. And so, yeah, it 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 is a really interesting question about chuva and transness and just personal change. Is what we want to do like cut off the from the life we used to live, like make a clean break? Or is there this idea of return that is in the word shuva? I find both things very useful. Um, I think they're both in that idea of, I mean, there's this idea that this word, this phrase about the shuva, like a, a, a master of return or a, a sort of like expert at returning or someone who's constantly returning that um, coming back to something that's at the center of ourselves, making a break with a self we have maybe let ourselves drift into becoming, that that something is always happening, that, that change can be constant. And I think that this is, I feel like people who are, I have felt this when I was starting to come out of this anxiety of like, oh, if I, I got to name this thing and get it right, because once I name it, then it's my thing. And right. if I let it evolve or let it change or feel like I am constantly returning and turning and turning, people won't take me seriously. It'll be like, it won't be as real. So I just think this idea of um, chuva is something we're always doing uh, is quite, is quite powerful. Um, I mean, I, this is this thing that I, this, story i'm obsessed with this buddhist teacher who was teaching meditation and she was like i've been meditating for 40 years and people say oh you probably are able to like focus on your breath for half an hour hours you could sit there and stay on your breath and she's like no no i i like my breath drifts after two minutes when i'm meditating and the thing that i've been practicing for 40 years is like noticing that and then like forgiving myself and moving back to the beginning that there's this that that to me is like what it really means to be a master of return and I think that that, I mean, to, to tug that back towards the word trans, like, I think that's an incredible freedom that feels like an exciting to horizon to imagine of like having this relationship of truth to your sense of self by way of your sense of gender that you're able to keep in touch with and responding to as it grows and changes in the course of your life. Yeah. I mean, some people do think of being trans as like, I did a transition and it is done and now I'm like happier and better I mean I I'm I definitely more lean to like I have to keep watching this and in a good way like it it feels like self-honesty to keep um looking at myself and being like is that me can i be more me i'm i'm getting a little babbly i mean i think that there's just to sort of like bring back what we where we've been already i think what you're saying about there's a kind of lovely parallel between what it means to come out as trans and the maimonides idea of chuva like there's a verbal confession there's a series of actions that are directed at changing how you're living your life and then there's a resolve to stay committed to the thing that you committed yourself to which in this case i think is a certain truthfulness about who you are yeah and may maybe that's where i think return really comes in that like 
there's a sense of like you've you you've already you already know what's right for you or you already know what it feels like to be figuring out what's right for you that's like a path you've been on and maybe you've wandered off of that path um will you live the next oh go ahead and well yeah and that that has i feel like that's happened to me with being trans especially early times before like establishing certain things that, like i am gender non-conforming i know that and i want that i found it there was an there was an easy slide just into doing the more convenient thing and looking masculine for the people who always knew me as masculine and that was just it was a sliding off of the path that was actually best for me um so i needed to master returning you know returning to and not returning to the place where i started but returning to the process that i uh knew i wanted to be in. Will you lay the next question on me? Because I think there's a beautiful answer to what you were just saying, or a beautiful conversation what you just said in this next question. I will lay the next question on you. It is. Question three. Is Shuva subversive? Yes. Or is it conservative? Yes. Next question. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, simple. That was easy. Um, well, no, it, it's exactly the same theme we were just on with, like, are we returning, how to say it, is it more subversive to make a clean break with the past, no sense of return, but just like, I'm a new person, I'm going to behave differently? Or, I don't know, is there something... Is there something powerfully subversive about start go looking for an originating motive and returning to it? I mean, this is I think that phrase originating motive is the key phrase, and I think why I think it is Juva is subversive is is that you know we move through the world and there's so much that gets thrown at us, and that's designed to awaken our desire, like things we can buy, people we can be, experiences we can have, lives we could lead, like all these things are just constantly barraging ourselves. And this is, and it's very easy to find ourselves orienting our goals and priorities around the things that get thrown at us. And I think that if this idea of, re of repentance is return, coming back to this originating like key anchor of who we are, I think inevitably that means you end up rejecting a lot of what society throws at us. So I think that that's where I, that's where I think that Chuva gets subversive is because it brings us back to some place to begin that's deeper than the desires that are like the winds buffeting us in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. I mean, it is also true. I mean, some people do need a, like, I'm making a major break. I am. Yeah. Maybe it's, you can have a major break from your bad behaviors, almost like becoming a new person, but that new person is a kind of return to um, 
I don't know, something you did know when you were younger, you know, or something you, your, your soul knows and always knew even when you didn't honor it. I mean, do we think that the same thing is operates on the level of societies as it does as individuals? Like, does, is it possible for a whole society to perform chuva? I mean, this has been... Well, yeah. Well, wait, before that, I just want to, I just want to answer your Talmud with a little other Talmud. All right, all right. Um, from the Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, Rabbi Yitzchak said, a person's sentence is torn up on account of four types of actions. These are giving charity, crying out in prayer, a change of one's name, and a change of one's deeds for the better. That might be from the same page that you just quoted, actually. Um, but it's about how a person's sentence, like some, um, how a person's sentence is torn up. Their fate is going, is planned to be bad, but these actions can change it. Um, I just want to say that when you read that, my, I mean, you can see me, but people listening can't see me. My whole like being exhaled and I felt like a great softness come over my face. I find that's incredible that a change of one's name is in there. I mean, that's, I know. that's pretty fucking wild. I mean, and, and there's this later commentator called the Ron, his name, Rabbi Nisim ben Reuven, they call him the Ron. He talks about the name change and his take on the name change is that you change your name and that inspires you to do tshuva because it's a constant prompt to think of yourself as a different person than the one who did those things that you regret. And it opens the possibilities for someone who otherwise might be thinking, this is what I've done, so this is who I am, and this is what I do, and this is what I will always continue to do. I'm a sinner in this way. I'm a chicken stealer. Uh, but the actual, the name change is like, gets into your life that change is possible. And it's it's a beautiful queer I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I love this so much. I mean, I also think it's like, when I think about times in my life, of which this last two years has been one, when there's been a lot of change, when, once you start making one change and something that was hard to do shifts, it's, and then you make another change or something that was hard to change shifts and things are falling apart, but you realize you're okay, that things that you thought were sort of part of the architecture of your life are collapsing all around you. It's kind of this incredible adrenaline and this readiness to change even harder things to change. You just, I feel like I was talking to a friend who was trying to end a relationship and she was like, uh, uh, I don't know if I should do it. And I was just like, walk out, leave, call right now. You're going to make up the phone, call this person. It's an unhealthy relationship. Get out of, you know, like I think that there's, and I think a name changes like a fundamental thing on that level. And I think that we do get a lot of courage to change the things about our lives and ourselves that are scary to change when we start to make other changes. Oh, so I, I'm totally here for Rabbi Yitzchak and the Ran. Yeah. 
and I mean, I think it also points to that the idea that like when the when the stakes get really high, when the stakes are uh, ethical, deeply ethical, and maybe like about your survival as a moral person, or even your survival at all, you should be thinking about radical changes, extreme. Uh, I mean, like you can, I guess is the thing that I like about it. You can change stuff that you never thought of as changeable. Um, because you need to, because it's worth it. Um, as the great uh, transgender writer Kate Bornstein wrote, I always remember this, when you feel suicidal, don't kill your body. Kill the who of you that needs to die so a better version of you can go on living. Oof. And it's a, I, I read those sentences toward the end of college and it felt like potentially life-saving. Um, Kate. Kate. Kate Bornstein. Knows her, sh- knows her shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I feel like this all feels much more... I love that we've introduced the level of these stakes. My chicken example was not nearly high stakes enough. Yeah, I guess... I am interested in the subversiveness of Elul and of repentance. I mean, like, I mean, we live in a country where a guy who has never apologized for anything and who's wrote in a book when you do something when you you do something unacceptable deny 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 that guy became president um like we're in a culture that doesn't know how to apologize and you see people who have you know done the like people who have done public ethical violations and they feel remorse and they just don't even know how to apologize. They don't know how to make restitution. It's like we're, I mean, we're just not trained to do it. Um, And I think a lot of us are trained to be like people who do wrong are over uh like there is no way back from a transgression yeah you're morally stained i mean what that brings up for me is the vulnerability of making chuva of apologizing because if it's Mm -hmm. genuine it can be very frightening to especially when you're confronting the person that you have wronged or people you have wronged to basically put yourself in their hands a little bit and say, look, I did this thing and I'm going to do what I can to make it good. But also it's up to you whether you're going to forgive me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, um, I appreciate the, the daringness of asking everyone, 
every single person to do that. That's what Elul, it's like a, it's a daring thing to ask everyone to confront what they've done wrong and like say it out loud. I, I mean, I think that this is also, uh, this is part of, I think the conversation our country has been struggling to have about white supremacy in this last couple of years in a broader way than it has ever happened before as a conversation. And I think of something uh, Toni Morrison says in an interview where the interviewer asks her about the harm that um, racism has done to black folks in America. And she's like, I'm, you know, the material harm aside, like our spirits are fine. I'm worried about the spirits of the white people. And I think that there is something about um, living in a world that runs on the juice of white supremacy that requires a certain hardening of the heart to yeah. to to inhabit that world and not speak about it and not commit oneself to working to change it. Um, and so I, th I think there is something about re-tenderizing and sensitizing our hearts that becomes possible when we attempt these, even these larger attempts, even these larger kinds of social tshuva, you know, like to say, that I see my part in this system of white supremacy, that I am bound up in this thing. To really understand what that means to say and to do the work that follows from that, I think it's kind of like an awakening of the heart. Like there's just, there's just so much more um, space for love in a heart that can do that. And there is yeah, in a heart that sort of just like shields its eyes and continues bustling down the street. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at that Heschel passage about um, prayer. Oh, yeah. Will you read it? Uh, prayer, Abraham Joshua Heschel says, is meaningless unless it is subversive, unless it seeks to overthrow and to ruin the pyramids of callousness, hatred, opportunism, falsehoods. The liturgical movement must become a revolutionary movement, seeking to overthrow the forces that continue to destroy the promise, the hope, division and i think it's really key that he uses that word callousness that mm. that to really engage in the work of chuva is to resensitize and sometimes a lot of pain comes flooding in when you resensitize but i think that that's where you know if we feel like we have this energy of god behind us we can we find the strength somehow well I think a key contribution of Judaism is the story of the Exodus from Egypt and the thought that's contained in there that slaves could become non-slaves. Um, pushing against this culture of, I mean, the ancient way of seeing things, I, not that I know so much about different ancient societies, but it's against the idea that slaves are slaves, kings are kings, what you're born is what you are. Judaism, both in the Exodus from Egypt and in its vision of personal tshuva and collective repentance has this idea of 
changes possible. We can go from one status to another. We can improve as people and our world can get better than it was. Not everything is fixed and eternal. So it's a uncallousing. I mean, you use the phrase hardening our hearts and callousness. I mean, that's the Pharaoh's repeated central act is to harden his own heart. And then God starts hardening Pharaoh's heart in this like frightening cycle um, where it's like, he just will not and then cannot admit that the way the structure of his society is about to change. And that's suicidal. Uh, refusing to see a possibility of change is a, is a death. Um, so this name, there's a name that keeps coming up in the last couple of things we've said, because I, I feel a swelling of, of excitement and hope and fear and thinking about this kind of societal change. This name that keeps popping up that was word we're using, um, this feels like a lead into our last question. Yes. What is that name? It's God. God. Yeah. The hardest thing to talk about. We save for question four. How we phrased it was, how is God involved? How is God involved? In the month of Elul, in the preparation for the high holidays, and in the process of repentance. And I mean, the I'm sure hanging over plenty of listeners' heads is the question like, what are you talking about? When you say God, I, what if I don't believe in it? Do I have to believe in that? Um, so it's very juicy and could get very shaggy. I mean, the, 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 this is sort of a sidestepping of what you just said, because I think it, it like puts another kind of bracket around the word God and lets it be a, I mean, a number of different things. But I think, I think the sort of the, the 12 steps from AA from recovery programs are actually quite profound and useful. And I think that it's helpful to like, have you done AA? I have been involved in other recovery groups and I have a lot of dear friends who have been in AA. So I haven't, I've have never worked the steps myself, but I've mm -hmm. read a lot about them and talked to a lot of people about them. And, um, you know, there's this, the Heshbon and Nefesh, there's like a, searching and fearless moral inventory you make you sort of write down everything you've done to wrong someone and then you make amends and you like address those people you talk to them you try and fix the things that you have broken um but threaded through this whole process is acknowledging a higher power and i think in those recovery programs you can you're allowed to define your higher power however you want they find they say even if you are an atheist they say that you have to find some you know, it's maybe the idea of goodness or something like that. There's something bigger than yourself out there that you have to yeah, sort of basically hand yourself over to. And I think that, that what that is acknowledging is how much fear there is in this process and how hard it is to believe that you yourself can like make the kinds of change that you're asking yourself to make, that you can, that you can make these amends and still be whole. And so that, I think that in that case, like, God is involved in Shufa, and so far as we need something, we need 
we need a higher power. We need something stronger than ourselves sometimes in order to have the courage um, to do what Shiva asks us to do. Yeah. And even if it is a higher power just in that, yeah, in that atheist AA sense of like a standard that um, to, to measure, I mean, to make currency worth something, there has to be a standard it's, that's worth more, that is measured against um, something that is a fixed thing uh, and holds some kind of authority. I think that becomes talking about God when it becomes relational, having a I mean, listen, I'm not going to give you my whole theology. It's like very complex. And, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, Let's. <laughs> I, 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 we don't need to. I, I think there's elsewhere that I might get more into it. But um, a basic for me, when I talk about God, I'm talking about the fact underneath all facts, the source of anything existing at all and thinking about um, existence itself as having like a unity um, everything has this God aspect this fact of existence this ground that everything rests on but that you can also have a relationship with that that you can turn toward what underlies existence as such as you would turn toward a friend or a lover and have a love relationship or a family member, a parent, um, to have a love relationship with the source of being. I think that's when I, that's where I start with talking about God. Um, and I think Elul is like a time to work on that relationship in a, in a, in a very intimate way. Um, maybe it's, maybe I should talk about the king is in the field, this phrase that, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Talk about the king is in the field. It's a phrase that hangs around Elul in, in, uh, in Judaism. Um, it's often translated as Elvis is in the building. (laughs) This phrase comes from a Hasidic Rebbe, Shneur Zalman of Liadi, first leader of the Chabad movement in the 17th century, 17th, 18th, something like that. Um, he was trying to explain um, this intimacy that exists with God in Elul. He, and he, he talked about the approach of the high holidays, the Yamin Noraim, as like a king approaching a town where the king will return to the king's palace and and sit on a throne. And on Rosh Hashanah, which happens on the first of the next month, the king takes the throne. And once the king is on the throne, you have to have a royal appointment to talk to a king. But in Elul, the king is still approaching the town and the king is in the field. 
and that means any of the townspeople can come out of the city and go greet the, the king in the field surrounding the city. So it's this period when we can all talk to God, be seen by God, despite the fact that we're nobodies, that we don't have a royal connection. We don't, maybe we don't know how to pray. Maybe we don't know anything about God. Um, but we're all invited, we're all asked to work on that relationship. Um, I really like the, <laughs> it's funny to use the word democracy, I guess, in, in, when talking about a king. <laughs> but it's like, before, the king is not quite the king this month. The king is sort of um, someone you can approach. The structure around the king is not there. We're out in the field. Right. It's like that. It's the Taylor Swift song, The King of My Heart, right? Isn't that a Taylor Swift song? I believe you that that's a Taylor Swift song. I think that's about Elul, actually. <laughs> Aren't most Taylor Swift songs about the Jewish calendar? They are. It's true. Um, I, I, I will mention that I usually refer to God with she, her pronouns, and more often say queen. But I think you can, I, I, I agree that God is non-binary and God can be king, God can be queen. It's funny, I often Sovereign. refer to Taylor Swift as with she, her pronouns too, but. I, queen. Yeah, I think that there's, no, she's not the queen. I think there's something, um, <laughs> I think there's something uh, no, I mean, using she, her feels like a corrective to centuries of he, him. Um, True. No, I think there's like something very, even the physical vulnerability of the king in the field, how could you say about the structure around the king is gone. It's the sort of this, this naked, exposed monarch. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't have a theology to expound. I just have texts that I love. That's not true. I have a lot of things to say about theology, but Shira Shireen, I was very excited. I didn't realize this was like tied to Elul. Um, you pointed out to me that it's often said that Elul, the name of the month, is an acronym for Anila Dodiva Dodivi, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, which is um, a line from the Song of Songs. Um, mm -hmm. And the Song of Songs book. Is, that's, that's my book. book. I love that book. Uh, I was looking back at um, chapter five, which is really the uh, the most steamy of the eight chapters of Song of Songs. Um, and yeah, Song of Songs is a very sexy book, physically it, descriptive. It really, I sometimes have to put the book down for a few minutes when I'm reading it's it like because... soaked in passion and lust. Can I share a few verses of this? chapter yeah. is a way of saying so okay. beginning chapter five i was asleep but my heart stayed awake listen my lover knocking open my sister my friend my dove my perfect one my hair is wet drenched with the dew of night but i have taken off my clothes how can i dress again it's like you hear a knock at your door just like lying naked in your bedroom and it's oh, 12 30 how can i oh no exactly that's I, i'm um naked in the bed what am i gonna do that's precisely the trope of this line i have bathed my feet must i dirty them and then 
my love reached in for the latch and my heart beat wild. That is one of my favorite lines in the whole book. I think that reaching in for the latch is like maybe the sexiest line in the Torah. I rose to open to my love, my fingers wet with myrrh, sweet flowing myrrh on the doorbolt. So, but then after all this, the speaker opens the door and the lover's gone. And she starts running around looking for the lover. And she goes into the town. She's like, got on her nightgown. She's like, oh, you don't understand. My lover was reaching for the latch and then suddenly he was gone. And in addition to being kind of like this gorgeous, painful, yes, this tease, it's like divine edging. There's also this <laughs> sense of her having to like run through the town and she gets beaten by the watchman and the daughters of Israel are like, who is this person that you're so obsessed with? And she has to say like, this is who my lover is. And she describes the lover. And while I don't think that this is a particularly emotionally healthy relationship, as a figure for a relationship with God, I think it's kind of amazing because it's this incredible intimacy, this incredible like physical proximity, this touch, this sweat, this like little bit of sweat appearing on the skin. And then having to represent and, and, and like basically testify to the world who this being is that has your whole heart. And I think that like, to me, Chuva is sort of like that. Who in the middle of the night at 1230 at night when you've been beaten by the watchmen and the daughters of Israel say like, where are your allegiances? Like, your life is on the line. What is the thing that's most important to you? To be able to say it's this relationship, it's this love that I have for the very ground of being, a possibility of relationship, the the tendency towards justice. And I think that's an incredible way of thinking about a divine relationship. Yeah, that is beautiful. Um, it, it's just really hitting me that like everything in this Elul month is about relationships. I mean, there's your relationship with God as that very intense thing where you're you're you want to be with god and you're not or you're just you're trying to reconcile and then there's all the just the chicken stealing and the everyday stuff of relationships with people and and then also the very i mean it's just to think of it as a month to work on relationships that it stands for amila dodi dodi li the whole month is a recommitment to devotion in your relationships. It's a very beautiful way to guide this whole thing and guide it away from wallowing in guilt and toward like an energetic embrace of what, this is what I love. This is who I love. This is how I want to become. I think that's beautifully said. I mean, I, I've been obsessed in recent years with the idea that I spent my whole life moving away from things and that finally I get to move toward things. And I wonder if we can think of Shuva with that sense of towardsness, towards love, towards depth of relationship. Um, well, the whole thing is moving toward the high holidays. It's like edging. <laughs> You know and then, then there's the moment with the latch. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where we, uh, do we leave it there in suspense yeah. until Rosh Hashanah arrives? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful note to start to wrap up on.
Um, <sighs> and we are totally being um, being beginners, being blessed beginners. We don't know what we're doing. How do we end? Does some music come in? I don't know. Maybe we leave the audience with a blessing of some kind. Yeah, and I include myself as a listener of our own words. Um, I want to bless you, Agnes, and bless myself, bless the whole audience of this program. May you have an LOL of recommitting to devotion and listening close for when and where and to what you need to say fuck you. The tenderest words in the English language. Mm-hmm. Amen. May we all find in this month a little bit of tenderness, some softness with ourselves as a way of preparing the ground for some of the biggest changes we can even dream of. Man. I think, yeah, I think we're good. All right.